Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Today we're going to continue the series, like Jason said, called Who We Are. Who We Are, and the goal over this four-week series is just to give you an idea of that, especially those of you who are new. Who are we here at Northeast Christian Church? Last week, uh, we talked about um, one of our uh, central values of love for neighbor. We are a Loveville Church after all, so that is core to who we are. If you missed it, you need to go back and listen. Important um, if you're going to be a part of this church family. This week, this week we're going to move to our next value. And these are, no in, these are in no particular order. Um, they're all important. But today we're going to talk about faithfulness to the truth. Faithfulness to the truth. And I can think of no better way to start a sermon off about faithfulness to the truth than reading God's word together deeply, lengthily. Um, so if you would, will you stand with me? Um, if you are able, please stand. If you're not able to stand, that is totally fine. You can remain seated. Just put your heart and your mind in a place of surrender to hear from God's word. And we are going to read uh, three passages, starting with uh, the psalmist. Psalm chapter 119, verse nine, the psalmist writes this. He says, how can young people keep their way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I treasure your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the ordinances of your mouth. I delight in the way of your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The word of the psalmist, now to the word of the apostle. Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. In the presence of God, of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, Timothy, proclaim the message. Be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, though, always be sober. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist, carry out your ministry fully. From the apostle to now our Lord Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 11, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord, you can be seated. Thanks be to God for all of his word. Even his word about his word. There you go. So one of the most dark and destructive uh, aspects of our human nature is this. We all have an insidious propensity, all of us, to convince ourselves that what we want to be true is true, even when it isn't. And have you ever noticed this about you? Of course you haven't. That's why it's so insidious, right? We we all have this this compulsion towards self-deception. We're so good at deceiving ourselves. I tell you what, it's killing us today. And it has been since the beginning of time. This is a story as old as time, a sin as old as time. Genesis chapter two, verse 16. It says, and the Lord God commanded the man, he's talking to Adam, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die, he says. Now, interesting passage here. Most of you have probably read this before. This is at the very beginning of our Christian sacred uh, texts. Uh, This passage describes human origins. Uh, The passage describes the material cosmos origins. Um, It also describes the origins of human sin. And uh, this this passage is pretty clear. If, If there's anything God is here, then he's clear with Adam and Eve. He says, eat those trees, but not that one. Very clear command. And also really clear consequences. If you eat that one, you shall die. Now, well, we can't fault God for his clarity here. I've read this passage a hundred times and every single time I get a little frustrated with God, just slightly annoyed, all right? Forgive me, Lord. But it's just, it's a bit, it's a bit annoying to me that he doesn't explain why. There's no explanation give, given here as to why they can't eat that tree. Sounds like a good tree to me. I mean, there's the apple tree and the orange tree, but then we've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want that one, but he doesn't explain it. In fact, 85% of the time, God's truth makes perfect sense to me. But there are some times when we read the scriptures where it's just like, that doesn't make sense or there's no reasons offered and we just kind of got to embrace it because God says so. I mean, I don't know, because God knows better. He just asks us to trust him because he knows better for us than we know better for us. This is one of those moments. It's kind of frustrating. Now, here's what makes it even more difficult. Genesis chapter three goes on to describe the tree. It says the tree was good for food, aka it seemed healthy. And not only did it seem healthy, but 
It was a delight to the eyes. Look good. And not only did it look good, but the tree was desired to make one wise. It was desirable to the heart. Oh, and not only was it desirable to the heart, Genesis 3, 4, it says there was this still small serpent voice whispering in the ear of the woman, God's a liar. You will not die, come on. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What a predicament they're in. And yet we see from the very beginning that even though sometimes things seem healthy, sometimes things look good, sometimes things feel desirable, and sometimes things sound really, really logical in my head that doesn't make them right. We don't make them right. God makes them right. I heard one pastor say it like this once. He said, uh, this is God's universe. He does things his way. Now you may have a better way of doing things, but you don't have a universe. It's a good point. Just the right level of snark for me, by the way. Now, perhaps we could say it a little bit differently. There are things that we're asked to obey simply because God asks us to obey them, trusting he knows better. And that can be so hard for us, especially when everything inside of us is pointing the other direction. And yet we see this story, we see this sin, it is as old as time, and we also see our insidious propensity in Adam and Eve to just convince ourselves that what we want to be true is true. And it's killing us. Now, it's interesting to watch this sort of human phenomenon work itself out in our culture. Uh, because our culture has... It has just a, a very inconsistent and unpredictable relationship with the truth. We're like chameleon-like almost as to how we change our relationship with the truth in order to justify whatever we wanna believe. I would describe it to you like this, for example. Many of us are really, really good and fond of playing the science card, aren't we? When we wanna justify our truth. When we find research that supports our opinion, we are so quick to say, well, look at this Bible scholar, look at this doctor, look at this infographic, look at the research, look at the facts, clearly I'm right. But what I have found is that the same people who like to play the science card in almost the same breath out the other side of their mouth are really quick to play the skeptic card as well when the research contradicts my personal beliefs. Have you ever noticed how people can just like move between the two? Without even thinking twice about it. Okay, so um, I saw an article circulating recently this week that people were losing their minds about um, online. Um, here, here's a screen grab of it. Basically, there's researchers from Carnegie Mellon University and the University of Pittsburgh, and they surveyed 5 million people. That's a lot of people. 10,000 of which had an education level at PhD. And their research showed, check this out, that Americans with PhDs were the most vaccine hesitant group of people. Here's the graph for those of you who are interested. Now, here's what's mind blowing about this. Okay, or here's why people were, were freaking out. One of the popular narratives today, one of those totalitizing narratives that are in the mainstream is that it's you Kentucky folks 
you southern uneducated doofs, you are the problem with America today. Pick your issue. So people were losing their minds because all of a sudden the research said perhaps, just perhaps, there's a bit more nuance. Perhaps the totalizing narratives that are pushed by the mainstream are a bit too simplistic. Maybe it goes further than what we hear every day on the news. I'll tell you this, there's at least one Kentucky pastor without a PhD who got his Fauci ouchie. I'm just saying, so <laughs> we shouldn't just reject research outright because it doesn't fit the narrative. That's all I'm saying. Okay, this brings, me to the next card. No, this brings me to the next card we play. We play the science card, then we slide over and play the skeptic card. Oh, then many of us will slide over and we'll play the revisionist card. Real fast, what's the revisionist card? Well, it's when history contradicts my personal beliefs, I'll say, well, that's not exactly how it went down. That's, you know, that's not, that's not right. I kid you not, this is a prime example. I just found this out in the last two weeks. Did you know that there are people out there that deny that the Holocaust happened? Just deny it. Thousands of them. Or at the very least, they deny that it was, bad as, it was as bad as it was. Like there weren't concentration camps that exterminated millions of Jews. They just did not. Go Google this week, if you doubt me, Holocaust denial. And you will find hundreds upon thousands of people, some of them with PhDs beside their name, that, uh, that don't believe it happened. Again, just going to show that if we want to, we can find people with credentials to justify whatever we want. Now, back to our list, okay? Because this next card's important. I think that what ultimately determines for most of us when we play the science card, skeptic card, or revisionist card is the next card. This is the Trump card, if you will, and that pun is not intended there. Like, this is the card that, tr that trumps all the others, all right? And it's the partisan card. Partisan card is when we choose a, uh, when choosing a political side, it's just easier than acknowledging the nuance or admitting the facts or saying that my party or my politician got it wrong. This is in fact the one thing that the left and the right agree on right now is the importance of hostile partisanship to their survival. Did you know that, that there's nothing in the constitution that says we have to have a two party system? We could have three parties, five parties, 20 parties. We could, we could have as many as you want to. But it's beneficial to both the left and the right to push third party options down because as long as there's two parties, they can create a us versus them, good versus evil narrative to tell their people. Justin Gibney describes it like this. He said, political leaders often talk as if their side is for all that is good and true. And the other side is for death and destruction. Implication is that we don't have to parse the details of their proposals or weigh the alternatives. We just need to know what position the right side is taking. And of course the right side is, is my side. Now last, if you were asking me to sum up the whole list last, I would say basically what most of us are actually playing is we're playing what I'd call the feelings card. Drop the feelings card. It kind of sums it all up. The feelings card is when I carve out exceptions in the truth that justify my broken desires or beliefs. And there's a label for that. There's, there's, there's a couple words for that. It's called moral relativism. Moral relativism. 
Not moral relativism in the fact that we believe there is no truth, but moral relativism in the sense that we all have our own truth and we will play whatever card is necessary in order to justify that. It's not ultimately about the truth. It's about justifying that I'm right or convincing myself that what I want to be true is what is in fact true and the sin and the story is as old as time, y'all. We revise the truth based on the feelings in our heart or the voice in our head. And it's killing us just like God predicted 2,000 years ago. So uh, that having been said, what's the solution? What's the solution to this? Well, I would suggest to you that for us Christians, the solution is God's truth or us being faithful to God's truth. At Northeast, one of our core values we are unwilling, we're unwilling to budge on is faithfulness to God's truth. Or I would add this addendum to it, faithfulness to God's truth, no matter the cost, because it will cost. For the record, Jesus was not a moral relativist. Jesus had a very specific moral vision. He did not think that all truths were equally valid or justifiable. No, he had a moral vision that makes claims as Lord over every aspect of your life, every arena of your life, every hot topic that involves you, every not so hot topic that involves you, Jesus claims lordship over all and he speaks into it all. He has a moral vision for our politics, for our money, for our bodies, for our career, for our sexuality, for our families, for our marriages, for our friendships, for our enemies, for our everything. You fill in the blank. And here's the good news. Jesus promises us that if we will embrace his moral vision, it will lead to this thing he calls abundant life or resurrection life. It's a beautiful place to live. But he also promises that if we embrace his moral vision, then it'll lead to a cross. Because there's only one way to an empty tomb, according to Jesus. It's the way of self-denial, the way of self-sacrifice, the way of the cross. Matthew chapter uh, 16, verse 24. These are Jesus' words. Don't shoot the messenger, okay? This is what he said. Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves. Their self-denial, take up their cross. Their self-sacrifice, and follow me. Or perhaps we could say it like this. Uh, today, Jesus tells us never deny God, even if that means denying yourself. But our world today tells us never deny yourself, even if that means denying God. And I would suggest to you that our age is experiencing so much death because of it. We're experiencing it externally in the form of culture wars, political violence, relational fallout, isolation. It's crippling. We're experiencing it internally in the form of exhaustion and epidemic of anxiety, depression, fear, and confusion. Maybe, maybe it's time we embrace a new moral vision vision of Jesus. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, if you embrace Jesus' vision, while he is popular for, you know, many reasons in some circles, this will not be popular overall. There are parts of his message that are very unpopular. In fact, could you imagine Jesus going and doing like a, 
like a commit, commencement address at one of the big colleges. You know how they, do, they have like celebrities come in and do commencement addresses at, at the graduation ceremonies. And they all say the same thing, basically. It fits in kind of the same few boxes. Follow your heart, fail hard, achieve your dreams, find your truth, something like that, right? Could you imagine Jesus walking up there and saying, um, actually, no. Um, instead, uh, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. See, what is it, kids, if, uh, if you gain the whole world, but lose your soul? Is there anything more important than your soul, kids? Your soul. Love you, Jesus, out. Like, and then that's how it goes. Because that's how it would go. These are his words. I mean, I want you to think about this. Is there anything that will get you blistered faster in our cultural context today than telling people to deny themselves? So Jesus did. Okay, I made a list for you. <laughs> Try this. Try this on your own this week. It's a thought experiment. Um, tell people to deny themselves their personal freedoms for the sake of common good and see what happens. Tell people to deny themselves for an unborn life, an oppressed minority, an Afghan refugee, or an, immor- uh, an immunocompromised person. See what happens. Uh, tell people that their body is not their own, but instead it's a gift to steward on God's terms. See what happens. Uh, tell people to exercise, eat healthy, rest more, deny their unhealthy relationship with food and their maddening pace at work. And see what happens. Tell people to deny their sexual desires, to practice holiness and restraint instead of sleeping with whoever they feel like and see what happens. Tell them to deny their career and be a better parent. See what happens. Tell them to deny their needs and make marriage about the needs of their spouse. See what happens. Tell them to deny their lust for more. Stop buying more stuff, bigger houses, and fancier toys, and instead give their money away because it's not even their money to begin with. And see what happens. Tell them to deny the temptation to build your brand and live for others' approval and grow an audience. Tell them that people weren't made for celebrity, but instead they were made for humility. In fact, just tell them to get off social media and see what happens. Tell them to deny success and instead to make work about serving others, even at the expense of profit, growth, or legacy, and see what happens. In fact, tell them that greatness isn't even measured in legacy, but by who the servant of many is. And uh, see what happens. See, we would all like to think that if Jesus were alive today, he'd be on our side, right? He'd be with us. He would certainly come to the Northeast Christian Church He'd have the same bumper stickers on his car as, as we don't even do car bumper stickers anymore. He had the same stickers on his computer or his Yeti as, as, as me. He would vote like me and he would think like me and we'd agree on all the issues and share the same articles online. Jesus would be, he'd be on my side, right? But I'm gonna tell you, telling people to deny yourself isn't popular. You sure he'd be on your side? Telling people that, that sex is actually a really big deal and it's not a desire that 
that we should pursue without restraint. That your bodies are the temple of the Lord. That the love commandment takes precedent over any other law, any amendment, any other commandment. Telling people that you should pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies and welcome the stranger. Telling people that gaining the whole world isn't worth your soul. Telling folks, sell everything you have, give it away to the poor, come follow me because, well, it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I mean, and these are his words. You think he'd be on our side? Now, I'll tell you where we'd be. We'd be on the other side, just like the crowd 2,000 years ago shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because who do we crucify today? Prophets who say similar. So the way of faithfulness to the truth, it is a hard way. Jesus, Jesus told us 2,000 years ago, it's a way of self-denial. It's a way of self-sacrifice. It's the way of the cross, cross-shaped love. But the good news is, is that it leads to an empty tomb. It leads to resurrection life, abundant life, and it's worth it. It's so worth it. But let's make sure we count the cost. Now, uh, you know what's interesting? What's interesting is a lot of people are waking up to this right now. Uh, for decades now, we've tried this sort of without God, secular project, if you will, to try to create the kingdom without the king. It's, Christian values are actually really popular in our culture. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them, they're really, really popular. The only thing is that people want Christian values without the Christian God. You know, they, I talked about it last week. They want the principles without the person of Jesus because Jesus says, actually, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. They want the kingdom and its values without the king. To which I want to say, how's that going? This is what people are coming to realize. How's that pursuit of justice going without Jesus? How's the pursuit of freedom and, and human dignity going without Jesus? How's the pursuit of peace on earth going without Jesus? How's the pursuit of moral communities or, or strong families going without Jesus? Not going very well. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, is, uh, she's got a PhD in Renaissance literature. She wrote a, a book recently where she articulated well this sort of God-hauntedness by those uh, from a more secular belief system. This is what she wrote. It's, it's a bit combative, but you'll, but you'll follow her line of reasoning. Uh, it makes a whole lot of sense. She said, in a popular 2011 TED Talk, long quote, so stay with me, popular 2011 TED Talk called Atheism 2.0, School of Life founder, um, Alan DeBotton, advocated a new kind of atheism that could retain the, don't miss this, retain the goods of religion without the downside of belief. The one of the, the kingdom without the king, right? He salivated over the black American preaching tradition and the enthusiastic response of congregants. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, Savior. DeBotton suggested secular audiences should respond to atheist preaching uh, the same way, by lauding their heroes. Thank you, Plato. Thank you, Shakespeare. Thank you, Jane Austen. One wonders, though, how Shakespeare, whose world was fundamentally shaped by Christianity, would have felt by being cast as an atheist icon. And when it comes to Jane Austen, the answer is already clear. As a woman of deep, explicit, and abiding faith in Jesus, she would be utterly appalled. She goes on. She says, likewise, at the 2016 Reason Rally, designed to mobilize atheists, agnostics, and nuns, multiple speakers invoked Martin Luther King's March on Washington as if a rally that despised Christianity 
would have pleased one of the most powerful Christian preachers in American history. In the same year, she wrote, uh, she wrote, I stumbled upon an Atlantic article that promised to explain why the British tell better children's stories. As a Brit living in America, I read it, uh, I read it eagerly, only to find it arguing that American children's stories are less compelling because they're more Christian. The author cited the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia as examples of British stories shaped by paganism, failing to note the fact that Tolkien and Lewis were passionate Christians who grounded their stories in the death and resurrection truth claims of Jesus. J.K. Rowling, I don't know if you know this about her, but J.K. Rowling, another author referenced on the side of British paganism, chose not to disclose her fragile Christian faith until the last Harry Potter book was published precisely because of its Christian influence. She feared to give the story away. So look, long quote, but do you follow her line of thinking? What's your point here? Here's your point. She's asking out loud, why is it that those without God keep trying to appropriate and co-opt the values and the saints of the kingdom? Perhaps it's because we are all coming to realize quickly over the last 18 months that the way of the cross through into and out of the empty tomb is the best way to do life. So look, what am I saying here? Okay, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying is that Northeast Christian Church, we believe in God's truth. I'm gonna be faithful to it. We believe that Jesus is the ultimate example of the truth of God. He is truth in person. Truth is not a principle. Truth is not a power. It's a person for us. That person is Jesus. We believe the way of Jesus and his moral vision is the way to abundant life, even today in a world infected by death. In fact, we actually believe that this moral vision is prevailing in the world around us. And one day we have a hope that it will prevail eternally in every inch of this entire cosmos. But we also believe that this side of heaven, while sin and death is still present in our world, we believe that the way of Jesus will mean self-denial, self-sacrifice, the way of the cross. It will mean pain. It will mean, it will mean giving up freedoms, giving up rights, giving up experiences, giving up prom promotions, wealth, money, all the things the world tells us to pursue, it'll mean swimming outside of the mainstream sometimes. But worth it, worth it. We believe it's worth it. Because there is only one way to the empty tomb, according to Jesus. Faithfulness to the truth, no matter the cost, that's where we stake our claim at Northeast. We welcome anybody to join us. Now, that being said, I wanna get really practical over the last few minutes here, and I wanna give you three quick pieces of advice. All right, the reason, okay, we hold God's truth as a high value here. We hold Jesus's moral vision as our way here. And that is the reason why we hold such a high view of scripture as well. You should know that. We're, you know, a Bible-believing church. And I could tell you all the reasons why I believe that scripture is, is trustworthy. We could spend hours talking about it. But the main reason is we hold a high view of scripture because Jesus did. 
several points for you. I don't know if you ever considered this before. Jesus was addressed as a teacher and a rabbi of scripture. He taught the Hebrew scriptures. He honored all of scripture. His mind was shaped by scripture. He interpreted the scriptures, challenged others' interpretations of the scripture. He fought off temptation with scripture. He believed scripture was a source of life, believed scripture to be inspired by the spirit, deduced his identity, death, and resurrection from scripture. He taught that he was the fulfillment of scripture. And he also believed that the story of scripture was ultimately about him, had a high regard for it, saw his role as central to it, and because of Jesus' high regard for scripture, we hold it high as well. So I believe that if you wanna swim in his, uh, his, his truth, if you wanna saturate yourself in the moral vision of Jesus, you gotta be in the Bible, you gotta be in the word. Probably more than what you already are. So I'm gonna give you three real practical pieces of advice to build into your life as rhythms that, that will help you kind of take on this biblical framework. Here's the first one, first piece of advice. Take this home with you, all right? First, read, study, and discuss scripture in community. I wanna encourage you, read, study, and discuss scripture in community. Now, the reason why I say in community is because most of us were taught to, re to read, study, uh, read and study scripture alone in our quiet time, which there's nothing wrong with that. Keep your quiet time in the morning or in the evening or wherever you do it. Just add on top of that community environments because if you're ever gonna overcome that insidious propensity inside of you to convince yourself that what you wanna be true is actually true, you need other voices speaking in your life to have the Holy Spirit inside of them. You'd be reading scripture with people who can speak the last 10% to you. So I'm encouraging you, read scripture in community. Read it with historic Christianity. Uh, back to our slide here. Those are the great saints who came before us. Basically, read more dead people. That's what I'm telling you to do. And the reason why is because all the things you think you're struggling with, there are Christians who are in our 2000 year history who have been there, done that. Epidemics, been there, done that. Ethnic and racial tension, they've been there, they've done that. You know, it feels like an empire's falling apart, they've been there, done that. An apocalyptic moment, yeah, been there, done that. They've got wisdom to offer us. Read it in community with global Christianity, Christians of the South, Christians from other continents, Christians who have different life experiences and perspectives. Uh, read it in conversation with your local church. I think that this hour when we come together to digest, pray through, and learn from scripture is invaluable every week. And also read it with your inner circle. You need to have people who can speak the last 10%, but read it in community, in community. It's something that many of us need to have, add. Second, second piece of advice. Fight for focus, fight for focus. Quick question for you. Has anybody in here ever heard of reading stamina before? Okay, any kindergarten teachers in the room, right? There you go, okay. Uh, like, and they're the ones who know. I just got a mess. I'd never heard of reading stamina until yesterday. Um, I got a message from Palmer's kindergarten uh, teacher in my inbox that said, um, we're working on reading stamina right now with your kindergartners. Okay, which they're basically just teaching them to be able to sit with and read a book for like, they're gonna build up, I guess, from however, to however many minutes. She's like, right now, your kids are at four minutes of reading stamina. To which I was like, four minutes, kindergartners. They're, they're weak. <laughs> but then I thought about my own Bible reading time. And I thought, hmm, I wonder, True or true, the very best Bible readers in this church are the ones who do like the, you know, the Bible reading plans in a year or you get through it in a year. And in those reading plans, it chops scripture reading up to about, oh, five to 10 minute chunks a day, a little better than a kindergartner. And for most of us, we die in Leviticus about February 
Or for many of us, you get to about minute three, not even as good as the kindergartners, you get to about minute three and you feel compelled with every fiber of your body to close your Bible and do what? Think about what's coming next or pick up your phone and get on social media to see another dog video that's gone viral. Important matters here. I'm the same as you. My consciousness is like chopped. I cannot read as long as I once could. So we have to take our cues from the kindergartners when it comes to this. We need to build some reading stamina. Honestly, wherever you're at, build from there. I'd also encourage you uh, when you're reading the Bible, this is a big point right here, second one here, read the Bible translation that you'll read. See that hand in the back, go ahead. Pastor Tyler, what's the best Bible translation out there? They're all translations, they're all problematic. So read the one that you'll read. They all got their goods and their bads to them, right? They all have a translation committee that came together and made judgment calls. So just, I would tell you, if you want a more wooden translation, NRSV and ASV, there's wooden translations out there that give you more one-to-one. If you want a more living translation that brings, um, you know, the, the ancient, this ancient book into our modern cultural context, NLT, message, paraphrase, NIV, whatever, I honestly could care less as long as you're reading it. Read the translation that you'll read. Now, if you were to ask me, tell me exactly the Bible to purchase, Tyler. This is what I usually tell people. I tell them to get the NLT study Bible. NLT is a living translation brings the Bible into modern context, but it's also got great study notes in there. So if you're looking for one, go get that. If you're looking for one to read with your kids, I usually tell people, if you got young kids, read them the Jesus Storybook Bible. Again, not a perfect translation, but it is amazing because it takes the whole story of scripture and shows your kids how it all points to Jesus. And that's where you wanna start it with them. Now last, if you struggle staying focused on the Bible, Another hack you could do is just read books about the Bible. Sure, read your Bible, but read books about the Bible because sometimes contemporary writers are better at bringing the Bible into words that you can understand. I made a list, if you're a screenshotter, you know, online, or do you want to take a picture? I made a list of a bunch of books that I know our staff pastors would recommend to you on all sorts of different topics. There are other books out there. Any topic you want, reach out to us. We can recommend podcasts or books. Um, what if Jesus was serious? It's a great five-minute devotional. Some of, our, uh, some of our leaders went through. Who is this man? One of my favorite books of Jesus on all, uh, about Jesus of all time. Um, Liturgy of the Ordinary. Burden is Light. Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. hurry holier Than Thou. Uh, Deeply Formed Life. All of those are great spiritual formation books. Lead Like It Matters to God and From Weakness to Strength are two great books for executives or leaders who want to take Jesus to work. Confronting Christianity and After Doubt are two fantastic books for the skeptics or the deconstructors in the room. Liturgy of Politics, Compassion, and Conviction. Two books on political theology that help you transcend the partisanship. Color of Compromise, Reading While Black, Generous Justice. These are great books on the uh, race and justice issues that we're seeing today. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Great book for you to think about the spiritual side of mental health. And of course, just go, if you want to, just go and Google the Bible Project today on Google. They have, I think, somewhere around 200 videos in their library that help you better understand scripture. But grab some other resources. All right, last piece of advice, and we're gonna take communion. And this may be the most important one. As we are faithful to the truth, as we build our scripture knowledge, as we become more and more convicted of what is true, I want you to know, third, you don't have to be a jerk. Do I, we need to say it again? <laughs> Repeat after me. 
Just because I know the Bible, repeat after me. Just because I know the Bible doesn't mean I can be a jerk. Good for you. And trust me, I have to tell myself that sometimes. Our conviction must be cross-shaped as well. Truth matters, tone matters as well. Love without truth isn't love at all, it's enablement. But truth without love will never be heard because you are a butthead. So we need both, we need both. Conviction is not zealotry, y'all. Conviction is not an excuse to dehumanize someone. In fact, we serve a God of conviction. And you know what Jesus did? He was so convicted that he did not consider equality with God as something to hold on to, but instead he stooped down and became one of us. He was so convicted that he spent his life healing the sick, preaching the good news to the poor, setting the captives free. He was so convicted that the night before he died, in order to illustrate his teachings to his disciples, he washed their feet. He was so convicted that one time when Peter pulled a sword, he said, put away your sword for those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And he was so convicted that the next day he went and he died for his fleeing disciples and for the enemies who put him there. This is the way of Jesus. It's the way of the cross. It's the truth we learn. It's the tone and the presence we take. So as we partake of communion, let us remind ourselves of our cross-shaped hero and our cross-shaped calling as well.